This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like, sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Yes, good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Three Triple R's weekly foray into all kinds of stuff surrounding that very bizarre thing called the human condition. Yes, Bush is my name and across from me this evening is Adam Grubb. How are you, Adam? Very good, mate. That was probably even more general than you've ever done the intro. Do you feel like the show's become fairly general? <laughs> because, no, let's just divert for one minute, or not even. Um... It was originally we had this idea of doing this sort of permaculture show and talking and looking at sort of real solutions for like human grievances and problems. And but we've touched on some really broad and unusual stuff. We're definitely not a gardening show. Don't <laughs> fucking bring that to me. Uh, people still do. We're I, we're I think we've broadened out quite a bit in you know two and a half years. We might be talking about gateway crops tonight though. We may well be doing that. Yeah, tonight's show is going to be a bit of a trip. Um, I and thought that, this show was about ramen. Ramen. It was very, well, it's about ramen noodles, isn't it? It's about all sorts of stuff. It's about everything. <laughs> that voice was Sarah Coles. How are you, Colsey? Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Actually, hello to my sister. If you're listening, you took my toothbrush. Ew. Yeah. Oh, that's neat for coming back. Um, isn't that awful when somebody takes your toothbrush by mistake? Do, do you want it back? No, but I just wanted to feel guilty and remorse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Darwin, hello. And possible disgust once she realises. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jed, panel operator, uh, toothbrush sharer? No. No. Evening all. <coughs> Not toothbrushes. I'll share a lot of things, but no. Not too. Well, fair enough. Um, indeed. So, yes, Green the Apocalypse is the show you are tuned to. Sooner or later, you are going to have a tipple. You're going to have a drink. You're probably going to experiment with a smoke. Young'uns out there. And I'm not advocating this. You're probably going to try some stuff, aren't you? And we thought that we would put on our social and economic and ecological hats this evening. Maybe not so much the economic, but we'll touch on that a bit. We're going to look at the social and environmental impacts of the vices, the illicits, aren't we? Is this what we're going to do, kids? We're really going down this path, aren't we? Because it's uh, it's four past seven, and it's too late to change our mind. <laughs> uh, it was remarkably hard to find uh, good information out there about this, all compiled in one place. Mm. Oh, it's really hard. Well, I found it really hard to find information. It didn't have like a really dramatic voice that sounded like a guy who <laughs> stayed up all night watching the X Files on everything. <laughs> um, because, but let's be, there's probably some pretty weird and dark powers at play. But, you know, the theme tonight is what are the most sustainable vices? Well, uh, specifically drugs. Specifically drugs. Um, we're probably going to touch on a bit of history of stuff, a bit of odd spot stuff, some of the effects and addictiveness issues. 
um, how it's made, who controls it, what the supply chains look like, and how it rates ethically and environmentally. I wish to reiterate time and time again for the next hour, we are not advocating that anyone use these substances, but we're going to talk about them because they're out there and they exist in the world. First cab off the rank. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> and cannabis. I'll put my hand up. I've used it before. I didn't inhale. Well, I did inhale. I did inhale. It's one of the old plants running side by side with human evolution. Well, societal evolution, the rise of civilizations, of tribal groups and so forth like that. Uh, it gets the nickname Gunja. It's indigenous to Central and South Asia. There is evidence of inhalation of cannabis smoke from the third millennium BC, right, which is namely charred cannabis seeds found in a ritual brazier at an ancient burial site in present-day Romania. Yeah, that's like a bra. A brazier? No, no, like a brazier, <laughs> like a cooking implement. Yeah, yeah, nah. No, yeah, thanks for clarifying. Like my myth. <laughs> that yeah, comes later. That's a, diff- yeah, that's a different topic. Yeah, yeah. That's like those 1980s leopard print uh, bikinis probably had some residues on them. Um, yeah, and the earliest written reference to cannabis dates back to 2727 BC from the Chinese emperor Shenong. The, one of the things with this particular plant is it got a really, really rough deal after centuries of helping humans. You used it for making cloth and fibres, we used it for making sails and ropes, we extracted oils for all sorts of things. Um, Henry Ford was big into it, wasn't he? Henry Ford used compressed um, hemp fibres in the original panels of some of his T-model Fords, I believe. Um, they were able to sort of take receive the shock a bit more readily. It's one of those plants that's incredibly easy to grow, allegedly. Allegedly, I may have known some people a few years ago that grew it in the sandy soils of Elstonwick um, and helped fertilise those soils with a bit of seaweed that we plucked off the beach, or that they plucked off the beach, not we. Um, it's an incredibly easy plant to grow, but in the modern era, it's actually kind of turned rogue. It's, it's an incredible, incredibly lucrative cash crop right around the world, partly because it's prohibited. It uh, falls in the USA under a Class A drug. Um, and as a result, it's often grown illegally. So there's, there's sort of a guns and an armaments trade that sort of runs side by side with uh, marijuana in the US. And a, a fellow I was in touch with recently who's in Northern California uh, and has a homestead there. He said any time he leaves his property to go out in the woods and sort of go and find rabbits or deer or whatever, he needs to be very wary of where he goes because if he sort of encroaches upon certain areas of the illicit marijuana crops, um, he can come face-to-face with some pretty heavy dudes who are armed. This is the, the nasty dark side of, of large-scale commercial marijuana. Also, uh, it's worth mentioning that because a huge amount of it in the United States is grown under uh, lights in sheds, it's become... Um, one of the most energy intensive crops. That's probably true in Australia too, right? I mean, I know yes, there's a lot of bush grown. I, I, I get the impression not a lot of marijuana is imported. It's probably mostly. I can't see why you would. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just so easy to grow, but it, and and apparently, like you know, it's been spoken many times over that it's got like a nice deep tap root on it that it helps to open up soils. You can like harvest it and chop it all down and and turn it back through the soils. But in the modern era, again, because these things become well, industrialised, we have an issue now where um, pesticides and things like that are being applied to large-scale outdoor crops and they are resulting in runoffs of uh, of fairly high toxicity. It's interesting in the States where um, they've legalised it in Colorado. Yep, and And California. And what done for the tourist trade in Colorado. Probably not one of the most visited parts of the States, but it is now. 
No, well, <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, touching on that, so when I one of the okay, so uh, what I was just saying before, with in terms of energy and, and pesticide use and so forth, um, you talk about the economics of it. So California is now at the forefront of the U.S. medical marijuana industry, and it's. Um, so it generates. So in California alone, the state's economy has um, hailed in 2.8 billion dollars of tax revenue in 2015, with 6.5 billion annually expected by 2020. And they're about to set up the. Uh, sorry, the state's largest grow facility was announced in June 2016 by G Farms. I have a little bit of a concern with this because if you're a person who, perhaps in the past, yeah, has has come under fire for growing a little bit in your backyard, and now these mega companies are getting the share of the market and all the rest of it, like you'd have to feel a bit shitty about that. But, but if we are a buyer in Australia, how do you rate it sustainability-wise? In the middle. In the middle. Homegrown, though. Homegrown, surely, no worries. Yeah. The only unsustainable thing is if you grow too much of it, you might get incarcerated, you'd be yes. forced to eat. Very unsustainable, not local organic food. <laughs> really shitty low-grade food. Yeah. yeah. Not even the best ramen noodles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's but I think compared to everything, most things that come next, uh, just from an environmental and possibly f- even fair trade perspective, it's just because it can be grown locally. It's it's got to be fairly high, you know, f- high up on our list of um, not too bad drugs. Yeah. All right, Colsey, you got mm. MDMA. This is going to make everybody hate me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we don't want to hear this. The dark side of ecstasy. Yeah. So I was looking into ecstasy and saffron oil is a raw ingredient for the manufacture of ecstasy. Where's that come from? Saffron oil is made from sassafras oil. Saffron oil comes from a rare tree species, Cinnamomum parathenonoxalin or something. Perfect pronunciation. Um, common name, Mariporov <laughs> tree. The tree grows in the rainforest in Cambodia. Um, it used to grow in Vietnam, but it's extinct there now because of the ecstasy trade. What? Yeah. They've so run a tree extinct. In the manufacture of saffron The roots of the tree are chopped into small blocks cooked in vats over wood fires for about five days. These steam distillation process draws the oil out of the plant. So lots of trees are cut down to fuel the fire. So Mm. so it's illegal now. So they go into the middle of the forest with these vats and then have a fire for five days where they burn down the rainforest. And um, they need to be near a stream because they need the water for cooling the oil. So then this... Uh, the oil contaminates the water source. Oh, Jesus. And then, so according to Flora and Fauna International, the extraction of sassafras oil is ecologically damaging. They say that it takes four of um, the sassafras trees to make one drum of saffron oil. And, uh, yeah, the process has led to the trees being extinct in the v- Vietnam's Mekong Delta. So in 2004, the Cambodian government made it illegal to process sassafras oil. In 2008, there was a joint operation between the Australian Federal Police and Cambodian authorities. The Aussie feds burned 33 tonnes of illegally stockpiled saffron in Cambodia. I watched a documentary from 2009 called Forest of Ecstasy, uh, where this journalist Adam Yamaguchi went into the Cambodian rainforest and they found some of these illegal operations. And the people in the documentary that were whistleblowing about it are from Flora and Fauna International. 
and I thought, who are they? But Sir David Attenborough has been donating to them for 50 years, so I think it's legit. Mm. Mm. I just did, it got the Attenborough tick. Yeah, he's more of a he's more of an acid kind of guy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, in the documentary, the guy from Flora and Fauna International refers to the factories as cancers of the forest and says one, they metastasize and associated with other illegal activities because once they clear the paths to do all this crap with this oil, then there's all this wildlife poaching and then they start chopping down all the other trees and mm. it's just it's ru- it's completely ruining the ecosystem. And it's um, saffron isn't just used to make ecstasy, but it, that's where it gets the highest price. You get it yep. says here like two thousand dollars a liter. It can get wow two thousand American dollars per liter, mm. and then a single liter produces seven thousand ecstasy tablets. So Damn. the trees that are being used to make party drugs are hundreds of years old. Yeah, and then I thought about how. Um, Hundreds of years. Thought, yeah, and oh. I thought about how people that I know that go to raves in Gooningarry who love trees and love nothing better than a bush doof and mm. being off their face on ecstasy in nature. It's yeah. just they didn't realise, but it's a bit of a shame. That is brutal news. It is brutal. You were just mentioning the deforestation. That was the thing I was searching for there. I didn't find the exact statistic, but the marijuana, illicit marijuana crops, is, again, it causes massive deforestation and habitat loss in parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, and what you're touching on there, it's really interesting. You meet people who have sort of had that return to the earth philosophy. So we don't want to use chemicals in our house, but we spend our entire 20s smashing pills. Yeah. So it's a real. Well, it, this is a phenomenal chat to have. Actually, now that we're in it, because it, it, it illustrates a disconnect that you can have, no matter what your intentions are, no matter what you're trying to achieve yeah. and do good, you can seriously miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. <laughs> if marijuana was legal, though, everyone could just grow their own supply, and it, there wouldn't be deforestation. Correct. Quite possibly with so, MDMA too. If, uh, well, if you could have plantations, yeah. Have been trying to make their own ecstasy mm. in America yeah. with their own sassafras trees. I don't know if it's really working out. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, depressing news, Carl's. Sorry. Yeah. Where we are listening to Greening the Apocalypse, <laughs> we are talking about the ecological and social impacts of illicit uh, drugs this evening. Adam Grubb. We've got to do cocaine. Got to do cocaine. I mean, if MDMA was su- somewhat surprisingly dark, uh, cocaine is probably unsurprisingly so. It is, although I think I can surprise you yet. Um, go on. Oh, so cocaine is the second um, most consumed drug in the, illicit drug in the world after marijuana mm-hmm. uh, with a global market in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, of course, it's been used, uh, the coca leaves, which are from South America, being uh, chewed by indigenous people for thousands of years. Then in the uh, 19th century, it became popular in toothpaste and medicinal pills and even <laughs> cigarettes and in uh, famously Coca-Cola in the first recipe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, it, was, it, it became outlawed. But it's, I think it's hard to find I- any drug where there is quite so much hypocrisy around that. Uh, whether it be the the kind of two levels of it, whether it's the cocaine, the the pure cocaine, which is used by elites, or the crack cocaine, which is used um, by poorer people, uh, through to U.S. government policy. Now, 
I'll just tell you one fact from history which sums this up, I think. And this was what was known as the cocaine coup uh, in 1980 in Bolivia. Now, the biggest grower of coca at the time was Roberto Suarez, and he offered to pay off Bolivia's entire foreign debt. They had a leftist government at the time. They didn't take him up on the offer, and they were cracking down on some of his smuggling. So he was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll just take over government. Well, who did he team up with to do it? Well... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes. Happy 4th of July, kid. He he, he got the green light from the CIA and they uh, shut down the DEA's investigation into him. But uh, he teamed up with the one uh, Klaus Butcher, who was one of Hitler's Gestapo chiefs, chiefs, known as the Butcher of Lyon, who had fled to South America and himself was a CIA asset. So you've got the biggest cocaine dealer, uh, grower and dealer in the world and one of the most notorious Nazis, not even one of the nice Nazis. Yeah. Like amongst the Nazis... One of the one of the ones who had a bit of a rep, nasty Nazi, and this is who the CIA backed in the coup. So dark, dark stuff. And mm. it was around that time when cocaine started getting into via Colombia uh, into into the US in large quantities, and that created the crack cocaine epidemic of the eighties. And then we had like Nancy Reagan launching the Just Say No campaign later on in the 80s, at the same time as the CIA is backing the Contras in Nicaragua Mm. who are um, dealing drugs and flying it on CIA planes. So it gets pretty dark. Environmentally, these lads are grown in Colombia, Bolivia and Peru. I found one uh, study into growing conditions in Peru and it's responsible for 10% of the total accumulated deforestation in the 20th century there in the uh, Amazon, the Peruvian Amazon. It's grown in high rainfall, high elevation, often steep sloped areas where clearing the rainforest means heaps of soil loss. Mm. So it's it's quite devastating. Obviously, there's no regulation on the herbicides and pesticides used in the process. In processing it, there's kerosene and sulfuric acid in large quantities and that ends up in rivers. Indeed. Yeah. And uh, to get one gram of the drug, that requires four square metres of rainforest to be cleared which you go, oh, well, that's only four square metres, but then you add up just the sheer weight of grams annually produced. And that's a faster clearance rate than palm oil. Yeah. So I think if, you, you know, if you're taking cocaine, just think murder, torture, dismemberment, um, suppression of people's movements, Nazi war criminals. Yeah. I think it's what? also laced with veterinary um, anti-worming medicine. Yeah, most often, of it. yeah. Just think of that. <laughs> mm. why, why did the... Um, why was the CIA backing him? Do you, uh, do you know? Well, this Sorry. was the Cold War. So yeah. just having communists on the doorstep was such a threat that they were willing to... And, and often they couldn't get congressional approval to fund these wars. So if the, the right-wing rebels or whatever groups in these various countries that um, they backed could fund themselves through drugs... And this is a pattern which happened even earlier in Laos with heroin. Um, they're willing to not only look the other way, but help uh, the distribution of that. Mm. Yeah. And much very, of. Very, very well documented. There's an amazing documentary on the History Channel at the moment 
called America's War on Drugs, which looks at all of this. And, and it goes all the way to the White House. Yeah. I wonder if it's happening more now than ever before with the particular White House we have. Uh, Colsey. I've got meth. I want to start by saying a quote from Ben Cousins. I was proper fucked. That was from... Do you remember that TV show Channel 7 did a two-part yeah. documentary about him? Yep. Ben uh, Cousins, the former West Coast yeah, Brownlow, Eagles, Brownlow medalist, premiership, uh, vice-captain. amphetamine addict. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked into the environmental hazards of meth. So um, it's complicated because you can sort of cook it anywhere and you can make it with things that you can find. Um, things that are already on the market. Cold and flu medicine, starter fluid, paint thinner, acetone brake cleaner. But for every kilo of meth produced, 10 kilos of toxic waste is produced. So it sort of um, works out that many of the chemicals used to make meth and ice are corrosive and hazardous and they contaminate the surrounding environment, including the soil, water and air. And most of the waste is poured down the drain and that eventually leads to soil and groundwater. Mm. So in the year 2015-2016, there was... 575 clandestine meth labs were busted in Australia, so there's a lot of them. Um, I was looking at in America in 2014, a whole forest was shut down because someone was cooking meth there and um, the pollution, the remnants from the clandestine drug lab were spread over 100 acres, so they had to shut the whole thing down. Mm. And I think one time I might have accidentally happened upon a meth lab in Victoria because my car (laughs) broke down and I knocked on a door for help Mm -hmm. and it was really weird and I got the hell out of there. Yeah. But, yeah. There's a lot of talk about where any house that's had it manufactured in there becomes uninhabitable. People might move in after someone's moved out and start to show all signs of illness and all sorts of issues. Yeah, it's the law that you have to reveal if you are renting a property that was formerly a meth lab, obviously. So real estate agents pretend they don't know. Yeah. If it has been. Anyway, huh. um, you can get kits, though, to yeah. test for 120 bucks or something. Anyhow, so if it, there's a history of vast tracts of uninhabited land being um, attracting illegal activity. So when I was a kid, I remember friends growing pot just in the local bushland or there was rumours that WA's bikies had tapped into the pipeline that goes from Perth to Kalgoorlie, <laughs> the water pipeline, to grow pots in the middle of nowhere with yeah. the water, which is... That doesn't seem as bad in comparison to getting rid of a meth lab because you just pull up pot plants or whatever. Mm. But meth labs are dangerous and expensive to clean up because it's so flammable. Yeah. And so a lot of the people making meth accumulate the waste in a drum or something and then they just dump it in bushland or on the side of the road. Mm. And so that's bad, but also there's another way that meth gets into the environment and that's through people's waste. So research suggests all types of drugs, from illegal drugs to antibiotics to hormones, enter the environment through sewage and wreak havoc on nature. Um, And I found these scientists that did a study, ecological consequences of amphetamine pollution in urban streams in Baltimore, and they found pharmaceutical and illicit drugs present in streams in Baltimore, and at some sites the concentrations are high enough to alter the base of the aquatic food web. Shit. So it's having a massive effect mm. in I, the environment. I think one of the ways they track um, trends in 
I think methamphetamine use is to actually go to sort of treatment plant areas. I've I've heard sort of whispers of this on radio before. Right. You know, how they take a look at you know Werribee or the the pipes that lead to Werribee to try and suss out through people's waste, their wee, their poo. Yeah. Where these chemical residues are showing up. Yeah, you can go a good place to find out about drug use in Australia. If you go to the Crime Commission website and look at illicit drug data report, for the first time the most recent report has data from the National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Program where researchers analyse sewage to estimate drug use in a population. Wow. Yeah, and it turned out like WA, Perth, Bunbury, Geraldton, there's some really heavy drug use they figured out but then i thought about that 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 method doesn't pick up on people that shit in a bucket like people that compost their own shit or piss on their own veggie patch (laughs) (laughs) but then i was thinking is there a link between permaculture and ice use probably not probably not (laughs) but if there is that person that one person is going to get away with it (laughs) maybe is meth and ice the same thing oh i think ice is uh well yeah I, isn't Simple, ice roughly. a form of meth? I think it's, Crystallized it's form. more potent. And, and in while well, you're looking around, did you see, has anyone tried to um, come up with the social cost of, of, meth. of, of meth or ice use? When you, when you look at the, you know, the, the effect that it has on people and their lives that mm. get destroyed and then someone's got to come behind and pick that up. I was thinking about it. I didn't think about it in terms of Australia, but I thought of it in terms of the Philippines because the president of the Philippines got in essentially because he was saying that he was going to have a war on drugs and he was mostly talking about meth in that country and that he was going to kill all the drug dealers. And so the social cost is they've got a madman for a president. Yeah, well, I think he's up to 6,000 heads or scalps that he's taken as a result of that hardline approach yeah yeah and then i thought about also as reading about syria and how fighters on both sides of the war are using a lot of meth so there's a big link between meth and war mm. which would be a massive social cost wasn't hitler on meth hitler was just up to his eyeballs on everything later in life I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. G'day, you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse here on 3RRR, your weekly foray into the insanity of humanity and how we might get through this calamity. Hey, hey. Nice. Bam. Right on the spot there. Uh, This evening's topic is the ecological, ethical and sustainability issues that surround illicit drugs, something that uh, many of us will take from time to time, but for which we this evening are not in any way advocating. We are simply discussing some of the things that go on behind the scenes. Heroin. We were just talking off air and we were saying, do you remember when you know, in Melbourne heroin seemed like just a, such a horrible thing that was going on? Like this was, what, 10, 15 years ago? It, it clearly was a terrible thing that was going on. You'd find dirty needles in the streets and sort of petty theft and things like that. Um, if you compare that back then to what we now have seemingly with the heavy uptake of ice, 
it's, it reminds me a little bit of that whole thing of remember when George W. Bush seemed like the most insane thing that could happen in US politics. <laughs> and when that finished up, you're kind of like, well, thank God that's toned down. <laughs> Yeah. Now, here we are. We've got the golden merkin, whose name I shall not utter. But heroin is... Uh, yeah, so heroin, it's... A, a, well, it's also known as diamorphine, among other names. It's an opiate, and it's most commonly used as a recreational drug for its euphoric effects. Um, medically, it is occasionally used to relieve pain and in opioid replacement therapy. Um, it's typically injected, usually into a vein, but it can also be smoked or snorted or inhaled. Uh, the onset of the effect is usually rapid and lasts for a few hours. Now, if we look at sort of opium and the history around um, the opium, so the opium poppy is um, where the base, uh, the base uh, ingredient from heroin comes from. Uh, now, it, go, it goes right, 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 right back uh, in human history and it's been used a lot. But one of the really significant things in the history of opium was the opium wars. Now, you know a little bit about this, guys? So in China, colonial yeah, Britain. That's right. Yeah. So there had been so trade between China and Europe had sort of initially kicked off in about the 16th century uh, with the arrival of the Portuguese. Uh, and prior to that, China kind of didn't register too much in the radar. But then European trading powers they expanded in the 17th, 18th century, and you could not get enough porcelain and silk into the country. It was a real high status thing. But the really high status thing in Europe during that time was tea, okay? And there was this very small and limited area in which British merchants could purchase tea and, and they were paying fairly inflated prices due to some fairly inflated taxes on it. But further to that, they had to pay in silver. Now, Britain at the time was running on the gold standard and so they had to go around that to buy up a whole heap of silver from other trading uh, countries and they, for, they forever ran at a trade deficit when it came time to buy tea. But around that time, they realised that there was this incredible shortage in China of opium. And the British at the time had complete control of India and its vast crops of opium. Um, so opium, as I just mentioned, it was a key con- ingredient in heroin. It had been used medicinally and as an aphrodisiac. And then in China, it, was, it became quite sort of a high-class thing to combine tobacco smoke that was coming in from the USA with a bit of opium and, and smoke it. It became sort of a high-end thing. So there was laws against it, but there was a lot of local smugglers and some very greedy officials that were willing to help the British sneak the opium into China in exchange for tea because the tea trade was so massive. So you see, again, the shady undercurrent that goes on behind the face of recreational drugs. And then we fast forward, this is kind of where it gets a bit more modern and topical, we fast forward these days to Afghanistan. So Afghanistan produces a shitload of opium and that's estimated that 90% of the world's heroin is sourced from opium in Afghanistan. Now, do you remember then the war on terror kicked off in 2001? We all remember that, and Afghanistan and Iraq were the two countries most heavily targeted by US forces and the Coalition of the Willing. Now, a Guardian writer named Spencer Ackerman observed that prior to 2000, or leading up to 2001, the Taliban had reduced opium production by something like over 95% in Afghanistan. Key areas of Afghanistan had had their opium production heavily, heavily thwarted. Then after the invasion of Afghanistan by the USA and the fall of the Taliban, the crop areas and the output explodes again. And it's observed in this article that the places occupied by the US soldiers were shown to be all the hotspots of opium production. It's been on the rise 
pretty much year after year since 2001. More land is now used for opium in Afghanistan than is used for coca cultivation in Latin America. So there we go. Madness. So it's a natural product? Look, the opium poppy is. It's very easy to grow. It's a very lucrative crop if you're a small-scale farmer and you're Mm -hmm. looking for a cash crop. It stores easily. Mm -hmm. Okay? So there's all these sort of on-the-ground benefits for the small farmer. How do you rate it for the average user? Somebody smashed the window of Friends of the Earth once, didn't they, and took all the poppy seeds? (laughs) I don't know. If you have poppy seeds in a higher enough amount, is that a drug? Does it show up on a drug test? I'm not sure. How do I rate it? It's Well, okay, so there's some interesting things with heroin. Heroin overdoses happen where very pure heroin suddenly comes onto a market. So there's there's deaths and there's risk of deaths from it. It's a really easy way to pass diseases through intravenous drug use. And it's obviously causing um, incredible misery uh, across Afghanistan. I'm just going to give it the don't go there don't go rating. There rating. It's, <laughs> it's, it's shit. Yeah, what about no matter... if you grow your own poppies and make tea? Mm, no, that's low impact. Low impact. It's true, but... Fair yeah. trade. Fair trade, mate. But, yeah... So no, don't do it. Yeah, I'm giving it a huge pass. Don't go there. All right, well, why don't we finish on something which is probably a little more upbeat, actually. This is a psychedelics. Psychedelics. So we're talking here uh, magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, DMT, which is the main ingredient in ayahuasca, uh, mescaline from uh, cacti such as San Pedro and LSD. Datura? Don't go go there. (laughs) So the the first three on that list are all just natural products that you can take unrefined. All of them can bring on visual and audio distortions and anything from euphoria, ego dissolution, spiritual feelings and intense insight to extreme panic attacks and or joining the Hare Krishnas. It's a fine line between a vision quest and a panic attack. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yes. um, Which we're not advocating you attempt. <laughs> um, they've been used ceremonially for thousands of years, with the exception of LSD. Uh, since the 1990s has been a renewal of scientific research into the potential medicinal and psychological therapeutic benefits of psilocybin and other psychedelics for a range of conditions including obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, social anxiety, cluster headaches and um, used for people with terminal cancers to reduce anxiety. Uh, so this really recent days where they're getting a bit of um, and very positive effects being found in a number, number of those. But for a while, uh, the backlash against them in scientific circles was huge. So this is another one where the history of LSD in particular takes us to the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So Albert Hoffman discovered LSD in the 30s. He was the first person to trip on it. During the Cold War, so he's a Swiss chemist, um, the US was worried that they heard that the Soviets were testing LSD to see if they, it could be used for mind control. So they went to Switzerland and bought up the entire world's supply, <laughs> which was enough to dose half of the entire US population at the time. And they proceeded to do a pretty remarkable amount of it through all different methods. So some quite horrible stuff on mental patients, which involved um, trying to break people's personality completely down with uh, electroshock treatment while tripping and in straitjackets and light deprivation and awful, awful things. They also did less severe things with students who were sort of informed what they were taking. Um, They tested it on soldiers. One of the students who took it was... One flew over the cuckoo's nest author later in life, Ken Kesey. He liked it so much that he got a job at the lab as an orderly, 
<laughs> and stole the supply. <laughs> and he used that in 1964 uh, to tour around in his bus um, with a whole heap of people, that, uh, inc- uh, including people that became part of the Grateful Dead and stuff, uh, and just spreading the good word of uh, LSD. Heaps of people of repute have taken it and talked about it, like um, physicist Richard Feynman, um, Oliver Sacks, the psychologist, um, business people like Steve Jobs, tons of musicians. Um, on the other hand, some some people that have taken it, it hasn't really advanced their careers or their, you know, seeming sanity like chemist Carrie Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, uh, but after a massive dose of LSD now believes he has contacted extraterrestrials in the form of fluorescent green raccoons. Why does it always have to be something so absurd like I a raccoon? Know. You or can a, write that shit. Yeah, you can invent <laughs> that when you're a kid. My kids say that. <laughs> Maybe your kids are on LSD. <laughs> Maybe not. From an, from an ecological... It's hard to figure out who actually makes LSD. It seems like a single lab could set up temporarily and make the entire world's supply mm. pretty quickly. Does that mean ecologically so it's, just, it's okay because it has quite low, like, I think drug it's miles? Pretty low it's so lightweight? It's very lightweight. Um, it travels fairly well. Although even better again would be, well, less bad. Less, less bad, <laughs> what are we yeah. saying here? Um, but picking your own psilocybin mushrooms, which is a form of hunter-gathering, it, I mean, even all the other so-called natural drugs we've talked about so far are horticultural ones. Mm. Um, which often have destructive farming practices, but picking a mushroom, hard to see that doing much damage at all. Mm. The, the Victorian ones grow in the colder months, in, in the bush and in, on wood chips, but again, we're not suggesting you take them, and there are uh, genuine possibilities of psychosis if you do. Mm. Uh, a lot of the beneficial studies that are taking place now are under some pretty sort of tight guidance and very tight dosing and that sort of thing. So, it's, again, we're not ad- going to advocate any of these things. We're really just going down the rabbit hole of looking at them. We- they can go wrong. Yeah, Timothy Leary, who was one of the, uh, or the most famous psychedelic proponent, uh, he came up with the phrase set and setting uh, which is about your mindset and the setting that you're in when you take them having a huge influence on what happens next. Mm. Why is it now that there's a um, interest? In uh, I think it just took that long for is the anti hippie backlash to. Or is it they work dissipate. out they can make a dollar? Like, why is it? Uh, I don't know how to answer that, but um, yeah, but they're back and and they're getting a bit of scientific credibility again and and seem to affect things like OCD and, and certain types of anxiety in ways that other things don't seem to be able to touch. One thing I would say just from the ecological perspective, there's a whole Wikipedia page on psychedelics and ecological thinking. Um, <laughs> so Hoffman himself, who was the first to synthesise and take LSD, believed that the drug made one aware and sensitive to, quotes, the magnificence of nature and of the animal and plant kingdom and the role of humanity in relation to nature. And mm. so a lot of people have looked into that, whether um, psychedelics can create ecological thinking studies have shown a correlation so that people that take psychedelics indicate a higher concern for the environment than both non-users and users of other illicit drugs but it's unclear whether it's causation or correlation yeah 
the late great Bill Hicks, uh, Texas uh, US comedian, was a big advocate for it. Um, we've been listening to Greening the Apocalypse, and we have been discussing the ethical, ecological, sustainability issues surrounding illicit drug use, of which we are not advocating. We simply wanted to have a chat this evening to you all, and thank you for tuning in. Uh, should we should give a call out to the Entheogenesis Australis Conference, which is an outdoor psychedelic symposium taking place on the 8th to the 10th of December 2017 near Eildon in Victoria. Uh, For over a decade, Entheogenesis Australis, Australis, I'm just reading off the website now, has provided a major meeting place for ethno-botanical enthusiasts and specialists in Australia to share information and form and Natanal, I don't even know what that means. A bunch oh, must, of people to trip balls in the same place national. at one time. <laughs> oh, it could <laughs> be like national. Um, be there. Yeah, Natanal yeah, means national meeting point. It's not a Natanal. Or Natanal <laughs> meeting point. It sounds like a language of ayahuasca or something. Yeah, yeah. To return to your Natanal. Have you heard it? There's some guy who invented a language that you can only understand or ways of communication when on acid. Mm. Involve, you need to be able to see trails. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. What's um, some other stuff, Ag? I mentioned it early in the show, but I've got to tell you that America's War on Drug documentary series on the Discovery Channel is amazing. History Channel? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, History Channel. You're right. How uh, do regular people that aren't computer nerds find that? Uh, just Google it. It's, um, it. it's at history.com and you can watch the first two episodes for a four-part series for free. Yeah. Highly recommend it. I mean, if you can get over the sort of hyperbole and the over-the-top narration mm. um the facts underneath it i've never seen anything so mainstream it? Woody so few, oh that would have been nice <laughs> no it's, it's just... i wanted to be sean penn and woody harrelson <laughs> yeah yeah because sean yeah sean penn needs the gig doesn't he <laughs> um yeah so we i mean didn't look at oxygen you can get high on oxygen i guess it's not illegal though no we can't tax it um yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting thing to chat about tonight. That you do sort of meet a lot of sort of earthy type, hippie type dudes that you know are all about dipshits. M- is the word you're looking for? You're talking light green <laughs> types, aren't you, Colsey? That's one of your great loathings in life. Bushy's my name. We'll see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.